0: Hello, and welcome to the Pulpiteer Podcast, an audio online ministry of Pastor Andy Kroll and St. John's Pilgrim United Methodist Church. You can visit us online at pilgrimunchurch.com or you can visit my blog at thepulpiteer.com for more sermons and writing. Questions one. Uh... Verses 24 to 29. I'm now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I became a servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles. Are the riches of his glories of this majesty, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? It is he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. You can just keep it right there. I'm just going to read uh, Jude, verse 3 to you. Beloved, while eagerly preparing to write to you about the salvation we share, I find it necessary to write and appeal to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be an acceptable sacrifice to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're um, going to have uh, so for the next little bit of uh, sermon series. Uh, I'm going to call a character of a Methodist. And it's based off of a writing that John Wesley did. Well, the, the title is based from a writing that Wesley did. And I'm just taking a couple of points from uh, what he wrote about there and just looking at scripture, like kind of where he drew that from and that sort of thing. So just look about what does it mean to be a Methodist. I think it's important for us to, to think about what it means to, to actually be a Methodist and, and that it's not just the name on the outside of a building, but uh, theological tradition that we're part of and uh, a, a character that we're supposed to have as as Methodist Christians. Um, I'll say I will begin uh, by acknowledging that I'm a person that really likes tradition. I really am um, a traditionalist in a lot of ways. Like I like tradition, like within the church, like the liturgy and and the teachings of the church. But it's also I like tradition, like I don't know, in our household and that sort of stuff. I'm I, I kind of started to figure this out when as, as I one of the things that happens as you go to become a pastor in the Methodist Church is. There's this whole process you have to go through. Part of that process is you have to go through um, some psychological examinations. <laughs> and they let me through. And they, you, it's this, you meet with a psychologist, and actually he has you take this test first. It's the MMPI, the Minnesota Multi-something-something-something. Something. It's this very important test. Big test they use. to. It's a very common one. Weird questions, long tests. And you go through this whole psychological test, and then you come and meet with a psychologist who then presents you the readings of the test and raises any concerns or that sort of thing. And it kind of, like, so that kind of turned me off right away. As I was like, so I'm meeting this guy for the first time, and he's going to tell me about me. Like, you don't know me, you know. And so then I, I go to meet with him, and uh, he says, yeah, you know, <laughs> looks good. And, and, and says, uh, you did score very high on being resistant to change. And at that point in my life, I was, uh, I just, it was You know, third year, second year maybe in my teaching job. So I'd moved like four out of the last five years out of college and all this stuff. And so I'm like, I'm not resistant to change. And I started to argue with him. But like when you argue, you seem crazy, right? So the more, you don't want to argue a ton because the more you argue, crazier you seem. And I was trying to hide being crazy, right? Because I wanted to pass. I wanted to get a job, you know? And so um, after a while, I just realized I just needed to be quiet and, and thought about it uh, through the years as they went by. And I thought, you know, maybe the psychologist guy was right that I am kind of resistant to change. Turns out I like things that have a pattern and a rhythm and kind of stay the same. And I like tradition and I like... Family traditions and like we kind of laugh, Ann and I, when we go on our summer vacation. There's things that I like to do because it's traditional for the family to do. And I would say, like in almost any other relationship, Ann would be the traditionalist because she likes to have that sort of traditional thing. And then I just like warp speed beyond her. Like it's just, and so she'll sometimes try to sneak in something new. Like let's let's go to this new store, and I'm like, but we haven't gone to that store before, you know. And, and Lord help her, if it doesn't turn out perfect, because I told you, this is why we don't try new things, Anne. This is why we don't try new things. And We've got the traditions that we do, the places we go, and in the winter we need to go um, to visit. So there's a family Christmas in, in, in uh, Grand Rapids, and then afterwards we go to McDonald's, and then you get eggnog shakes, and then go to Fifth Third Ballpark for the lights, until McDonald's discontinued eggnog shakes. I don't know what they're doing. Because you're supposed to do the eggnog shakes and then the ballpark. Not go and like have them say, well, would you like vanilla? No, if I wanted vanilla, I'd get a gallon of ice cream, you dolts. So it's... Anyway, I like tradition. I like things to have patterns and, and that sort of stuff. Because I'm not an unhinged anarchist. I'm civilized. And so that's the way I am. And so I just said, I confess that to you. Because... When I look at things like Jude verse three, it really resonates with me. Like I really love it. It it says, uh, "You know, I find it necessary to write and appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints." And I just love that because what it's saying is that here we have this faith um, that was entrusted to the saints and then passed down to us. And Christianity is a is a faith. That is, it's both passed down and it's personally owned. It's kind of an interesting thing. It's it's passed down to us, but it's personally owned. By personally owned, I mean this, like... Sometimes, like, if if everybody's just going to church, you really need to stress the personally owning the faith. Like, it doesn't matter just where you show up on Sunday. Like, it's got to be a personal relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. It's not good enough that Jesus is your dad's Savior or your mom's Savior or whatever. Like, Jesus died for your sins. You need to have that saving relationship with Christ on on yourself. And so, um, our faith is one that is, is personally owned. But the content of our faith, what we believe, is something that has been passed down to us. It's not just something you make up as you go, which really kind of goes against our cultural impulse. Because uh, culturally, we just kind of want to make it up as we go. We kind of want to pull in different things from all sorts of different places, like a big cafeteria plan kind of situation. And, and with that, then, people will construct their views about Jesus based on whatever they've had contact with. And a lot of us, we don't know what we don't know. And so you're, you're, building a, a, you're building a faith on a very limited set of data. And, and so it's um, whatever you've had contact with. It could be maybe you just went to Sunday school up to fifth grade, and that's kind of all you know about religion, so there, that's what you're going to do. Or um, maybe it's some Bible reading, or maybe it's a special on the National Geographic channel, who, by the way, they don't do religious specials well at all. They're gonna, they have people that sound like experts, they're selling you things. Just so you know, I just want to throw that out there. When that, when that would come on, and would make me turn the channels. I'd yell at the TV, and we don't want that in the house. Um, or you might be building it off of, I don't know, you went to seminary in your 20s. Whatever it is, hopefully you can realize the danger in me constructing my own version of Christianity. Because I am so limited, so limited by, uh, by what I know, by what I've experienced by my own faults and shortcomings, and we have 2,000 years of of Christian thought and tradition and teaching, and the faith has been handed down um, to us. Christianity is bigger than any of us. So you have this thread in in Scripture. You have this thread in Scripture where um, you see the faith being passed down. You see it in Jude, verse 3, to contend for the faith that was once for all given to the saints. In um, First Corinthians 11, for example, you also see it, uh, verse 23. Paul is writing, and he, he's talking a little bit about uh, communion. He says, "So I give to you what I received that on the night that he gave himself up for us." And he begins to go into the communion liturgy, which is kind of cool because our liturgy is based on that. We're just we're telling the story. So Paul received, "Hey, this is how you do communion," and then Paul passed on to the churches, "Hey, this is how you do communion." And then they passed it on, and they passed it on, and they passed it on, and we received it. We have a faith um, that is received because Christianity is bigger than all of us. As we enter into the faith, we have this amazing cloud of witnesses that surround us. We have saints who have gone on because they gave their lives instead of rejecting Christ. We have saints who were Brilliant and taught and inspired the church. We have apostles who received the teachings of Jesus and witnessed his miracles and passed them on. Like we, we enter into this great cloud of witnesses, the the Christian church and, and this Christian faith is a beautiful thing. Um, years ago, uh, Ann and I went to worship at a we worshipped a Sunday at an Eastern Orthodox church. It was in Lansing, and I don't know if you had a chance to be inside an Orthodox church, but when you go in, there's um, icons like saints, pictures of saints, all along the wall, just ton, like big, all along the wall, and then another level up, all around, and so you're surrounded by Bible stories and and people and all of this stuff, and it's just this, and it's and it's got a ancient, otherworldly feel to it too. So you feel like you're like in a time warp, and you just step into, it and you realize like. I'm in a different realm kind of thing. It's this, I think this visually striking, very powerful thing, a reminder that as, as Christians, when we step into a faith, we receive this faith and it's a faith that, that has this great cloud of witnesses around us. And it's this tradition that we step into. I bring all this up because I've been thinking about our Methodist tradition. Um, as I've shared with you a bit in different ways over the past few weeks or whatever, our, our denomination is in all sorts of Kind of, it's in a weird spot right now. Um, I, I think, honestly, it's in a spot where something is dying and something else is being born. I don't say that to freak you out because as pilgrim, like our goal is to continue to do the mission that God has called us to do. Um, but denominationally, there's a question of, so what does that mean for us? And, and I think that something's coming to an end and something else is beginning. And so I'm thinking about that and thinking, well, so, so what does that mean for me to lead you forward? I should say our church leadership's doing a wonderful job. We had a wonderful meeting about two weeks ago. And uh, our, our church leadership, our administrative councils and stuff were in a, a time of prayer, praying every day um, for the church and for our direction and fasting one day a week to discern God's path for, you know, forward for us. Um, but I'll confess that as I'm leading this and, and trying to um, lead the right way, I wrestle with a bit of anxiety. Because I want to be faithful. I feel the weight of leadership. Um, and I want to make the best decision. I want to help us make the best decision. I want Pilgrim, I want us to be in the place where God would have us be. And so, wrestling with that. And, and during my prayer time, God has been, oh, the last couple of weeks, God has been turning me away from fear of the unknown and towards um, hoping for and working for this positive direction. And, and so, instead of, I don't know, you know when you go, you guys are probably not warriors like I am, but you know when you have a big decision in front of you and you have about 1,800 different possibilities that you could go to and you kind of try to game plan each and every one of those and then you realize you don't have control over like 90% of them and then you freak out a little bit, you know. Um, and, and so you all probably don't do that, but so I do. And as, we, as I was praying through that and looking at that, I felt God saying, Andy, how about we look at where, like, in a positive way, where you're going. Like, what do you want to be? And that's where it started to steer me towards this, like, hey, let's remember who we are as Methodists. Let's remember who we are as Methodist Christians. Um, let's, let's go and, and say what are the sort of things we can do. And so what do I mean by that? Well, that's why we get into Colossians 1 today. Um, I really want to focus on verse 28, where Paul writes, it is he, or it's Christ, so it's Christ whom we proclaim." warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, he says, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so that's the big part right there. So that we may present, present everyone mature in Christ. The word that's translated as mature in Christ, "telios," is the, the Greek word. Um, and teleos means perfect or complete or mature. It's, it's kind of the idea of this something has been brought to its fullest conclusion, the fullest sense of itself, so it's, it's perfect in that sense. And so... Um, with that, I mean, imagine what he's saying is that he wants to present everyone mature in Christ, that you've grown into what you're supposed to be, that sort of thing. Now, that was one of the verses that was during my, my prayer time in the past couple of weeks. And as I was going through that, it just hit me like, this is, this is what Methodism was supposed to be. Like, this is the, the sort of things that really um, pushed our movement and really pushed where we were going and stuff like that. This whole being mature in Christ and this whole um, growing in holiness, like that was another way to say it would be that, that God would make you holy, that God would transform your heart so that your actions and your whole being were different, that your life would look markedly different, that, that we were part of this holiness movement because we believed um, not only that God saved us in the sense that God canceled out sin, but God set us free from sin. Um, this whole holiness movement was a part of that. Um, John Wesley, as he was uh, reflecting on the Methodist movement, and I want to be clear about this. He saw, and I think it's proper to un- for Methodists to understand, that we are a movement within the church. Like the Methodists, we don't think that we are the one true church, as if, like, you know, we're the Methodists and then everybody else is not quite Christian. That's, that's not the belief. There is the Christian church, those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior believe that he died for our sin and rose from the dead. Like, that's Christians, right? Within the Christian church is this Methodist movement. And uh, John Wesley was considering that Methodist movement because it grew very fast, very quickly. And it was obvious that the Holy Spirit was at work in that. Like, God was doing something through the Methodist people, through this Methodist movement within the church. And they asked him, so what's going on? Why did that happen? And he wrote, um, this doctrine of full sanctification... And sanctification is being made holy, this complete transformation of the person. This doctrine of entire sanctification is the grand depositum, which I guess is an old word for the important thing <laughs> that we have, which God has lodged with the people called Methodists. And for the sake of propagating this chiefly, he appeared to have raised us up. You see what he's saying is um, God raised up the Methodists because he wanted people to know about this, this entire transformation that God does. Uh, Robert Coleman wrote, or said, uh, apart from entire sanctification, there's no reason for a Methodist church. I think he's right. Like This is the reason that we were called into being, this sanctification. Um, this was the old question that used to be asked, what may be reasonably believed to be God's design for raising up the preachers that are Methodist? And the answer was to reform the nation, particularly the church, and to spread scriptural holiness across the land. So again, you get this theme of holiness, of sanctification, of, and as, as Colossians says, of being made mature in Christ. Being made mature in Christ. Like, this is the whole Methodist thing. And so, in the midst of everything else going on, I'm just going to pause and ask you, like, what if that really is what Scripture is teaching? That God can transform you? That God can transform you? Like, what is Scripture really is telling us that the Christian life is to be full of the power of God? Sometimes I think maybe we have this kind of apologetic sense. You know, you see the bumper sticker that says, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. And I understand the impulse behind that. Because on the one hand, like, we don't go around like, the opposite of saying, hey, I'm not forgiven, I'm just perfect. Like, that's not what we believe, right? We, just to be clear on that. However, do you ever wonder if someone, when someone cuts you off in traffic and their bumper sticker says, I'm not perfect, just forgiven? Do you ever think, but could you try a little harder, maybe? Like, <laughs> and, and I think, you know, what, if, what if the Christian life is supposed to be full of the power of God instead of just full of apology for sin? To be sure, we need to confess our sin. But what if, what if God is good not only to forgive the sin, but to set us free from the sin? Like, what if, that, that's, what if that's what Paul is getting at when he says, hey, we, we preach Jesus so that you can be presented mature in Christ. Or what if it's getting, that's what it's getting at in Hebrews 12, where it says, pursue peace with everyone and pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord saying, pursue that holiness, because no one's going to see the Lord without that holiness, so pursue it, go after it. Or in 1 Thessalonians, where Paul writes, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Like, that's what God wants for you, your holiness, your sanctification, a completely transformed life. And so what if it really is the case that the Christian life is supposed to be full of the power of God because of the Holy Spirit. Like, what if the power of the Holy Spirit is actually more powerful than any sin that is in you? See, that's the stuff I get excited about. Because that's about lives being transformed. And I realize for myself, like, maybe the reason I get so excited about that is I have seen transformation in my own life, and it is a good thing. It can be a hard thing, but it's a good thing. And you see the stuff that other people are going through. And there's stuff that only the power of the Holy Spirit can turn around for people. And I want that for folks. I want that for folks. This transformation that only God can bring. And so as I kind of go through this stuff and was praying through this stuff and reading through this stuff, I just realized I'm kind of an old school Methodist. Because the old school Methodists, they preached and prayed and they hoped for the power of God to make them holy. That's what they were counting on. Not that they would make themselves holy. Not that they would browbeat each other into like behaving, because that only works on the surface, right? But they, they were counting on holiness as a gift from the Holy Spirit, that God would come in and transform their lives, which is a pretty exciting thing. You know, there's uh, 19 historical questions that have been asked of Methodist pastors from the beginning. And it's interesting, as I'm kind of reflecting on this, is uh, when I was asked those questions, they make kind of a big deal of, and now for the historical questions, which, in a sense, it kind of feels like these aren't the serious questions. This is like visiting a museum. (laughs) These are the historical questions. The real questions are the ones that you passed earlier. But I think these historical questions have merit. I'm going going to look at the first four together. First one is, do you have faith in Christ? The second is, are you going on to perfection? I should say, Wesley's term of Christian perfection is unfortunate because it kind of brings up ideas that I don't think are exactly what he was talking about. But what he was talking about was complete transformation of of your heart uh, and and being holy as God is holy, as it says for us to do in Leviticus 19. But uh, are you going on to perfection? And then, do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? And again, I'll be clear that this was something to be made perfect he um, doesn't say, do you expect to achieve and unlock the level of perfect behavior, like a video game, you've reached the next, you've leveled up, right? No, like, do you believe that God will do this transformation in you? The right answer for these is, is really, uh, by the grace of God, yes. By the grace of God. And then the last one is, are you earnestly striving after perfection in love? Are you earnestly striving after it? Like this sanctification, this transformation that God has for you. Are you earnestly striving after it? One of my buddies who did his doctoral work in the area of sanctification, he made these wristbands for his friends, or for his friends and me, whatever. Uh, I got one, one way or the other. And it says on it, A-Y-E-S-A-I, which is confusing, unless you know. It's, Are you earnestly seeking after it? And that arose from a conversation he was having with some folks. And um, he's been really interested in this, this holiness. And then he realized that, gosh, my prayer is not always what it should be. My Bible reading is not. And, they were, his, and his friends, they were talking about it And they said, you know, in the historical questions, it says, are you earnestly striving after it? And he said, I don't know that we always are. And maybe we should. Are you earnestly striving after it? Like, if we believe that God the Holy Spirit can literally transform us, Why wouldn't we go after it? And so he did this as a reminder. Are you earnestly striving after? Are we serious about this or not? If God will really transform our lives, let's lean into that and try and open ourselves up to it. Now that question is going on. Are you earnestly striving after it? Meanwhile, our denomination is having a fight and asking, can we do this behavior or can't we do this behavior? But historically, our tradition has asked, are you earnestly striving after sanctification? Like, God will transform your life. Are you really going after it? And i got to be honest with you. I think that's just a better question. I think it's just a better question. It kind of reminds me of... Um, it, it just, I mean, think about that. I just I, I want to pause and kind of let this sink in. Um, because it's a very human thing that I'll ask myself a lot of times. Like, can I get away with this or not? Um, but I think what God is calling me to is a whole different life a whole different life, to be made holy. And it reminds me of a a C.S. Lewis quote from The Weight of Glory, where Lewis says, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. See, too often we settle for making mud pies in our lives, chasing after things we think will make us happy. Maybe you need to hear this today. God has more for you than making mud pies in the slums. For those who have faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of the living God dwells in you. And that Holy Spirit is more powerful than any evil, than any sin, than any mistake, than any Character, defect, and anything like that. The Holy Spirit of God is more powerful than any of that. And Jesus Christ has life for you, and life to the fullest, real life. And so then, I think the question before all of us is, if Jesus has that life for us, are you earnestly striving after it? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.